Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will indeed be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This is a time of the year where we're thinking about beginnings. It's not New Year's Day when we think about beginnings, but it is a time of year when it feels like we have the chance to start things new again. If you... If you're watching television, you'll see all kinds of advertisements for new shows that are starting or new series that are restarting. It's a time of year, if you're a sports fan, when football is starting. If you're a Bills fan, that's probably a bad thing. But uh, anyway, there's hope, right? There's hope something may happen. And, And it's also a time academically where we're starting new. Whatever level we are in the academic calendar, however much we may look forward to school starting, it is starting. And, and it's a chance for everything to be new. One of the things that I, I missed the first year I was out of school was that opportunity to finish a semester, be done with everything, and then when the next semester came along, you get to start all over again. Once you get out of that routine, it feels like it just keeps on going. And it never stops. But it's a time of new beginnings. And I think this is a perfect time for us to think about not just a new beginning academically and where we hope to go and where we hope to end up. It's not a time where we are just thinking about new beginnings, perhaps relationally, but also spiritually. It's a great time as we're on the edge of things starting out new to step back and evaluate what is Jesus to us? Where is, where is Jesus in my, in my list of priorities? How, how do I assess Jesus in my life? And out of that to think about, based on where I see Jesus in my life, where will I, what direction am I headed? Where do I want to be in two months, three months, six months, years? And I think this parable that we've just read gives us the opportunity to think about that. This is a parable that that Jesus says. It's it's a little bit different than the parable that's like it in Matthew's gospel. There There is information in this parable that actually turns it a little bit and makes the emphasis a little bit different than the, the similar parable that Matthew tells. In this parable, Jesus says there is a nobleman the master of a a castle, of a a house, who a man of noble birth who wants to be king. He wants to be the king over the area where he lives. And in in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for someone who wanted to be king to make a journey, sometimes a very long journey, to whoever was the king and to appeal to them to let that person uh, allow them to be the king. They had to go get permission. Herod did that. Herod's son did that. And sometimes when they make that, made that trek and they, and they appealed to the greater king, Caesar or whomever, 
they were granted their request, and sometimes they aren't. And so this king, this nobleman, wants to be king, and so he sets off on a journey. But before he goes, he calls together ten of his servants and says, Look, I'm going to give to you a great portion of my wealth, and I want you to work at it while I'm gone. And then he takes off. But not everybody in the kingdom that he wants to rule wants him to be king. Verse 14 says that the citizens of the kingdom, or the majority of the people of the kingdom, don't want him to be king. And they are so emphatic about it that they actually send a delegation of people to try to prevent this from happening. They go to appeal to whoever the higher kingly authority is and say, don't let this guy become king. We want you to know we don't want this to happen. I mean, they're serious about this. Sometimes in our family, I, I, have a, I have a reputation that we joke about of writing letters to companies that we think treat us improperly. And uh, sometimes the, uh, you know, the joke around our house, if somebody, we get bad customer service, one of the kids will say, oh, dad's going to write a letter. <laughs> the truth is, I don't write very many of those letters. You know, it's been years since I've wrote, written a letter. But it's become sort of this family joke. And, and, but I was thinking about that with this delegation. And I realized, why don't I write those letters? Well, for one thing... It takes a lot of time and energy. You've got to sit down at the computer. You've got to compose this thing. You've got to find where to send it. And I'm just thinking, is it really worth all that effort? Because in the long run, do I really think a multi-billion dollar company is going to care if they get a letter from me? Or if they get a phone call from me? Does it really matter? I'm just not that invested in changing it. But here you've got a group of people who are so emphatic about not wanting this man to be king that they risk sending a delegation to the leader, the, the one, the, the bigger king, and say, we don't want him. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why they don't want him, but I think we can surmise. It's not that they don't know this king. They, their appeal isn't, we don't want this guy to be king because we're not really sure what kind of king he's going to be. I think it's the exact opposite. I think they don't want him to be king because they know exactly what kind of king he's going to be. And they don't want that kind of kingdom. They don't want a king who will do what this king wants to do. They don't want a king whose purposes and desires and passions and goals for the kingdom are what they know this nobleman wants to do. They don't want that. I think part of the reason Jesus tells this parable is to say to some of the people listening, particularly the religious leaders, who don't want his kind of kingship, to say, this is what's going to happen. They don't want the kind of kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. They don't want the kind of kingdom where the poor are blessed, the poor in spirit are blessed, and the meek are blessed, and those who are humble are blessed. They don't want the kind of kingdom in which we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we know we love God because we love our neighbor. As we love ourselves. They don't want the kind of kingdom that says the poor and the vulnerable and the needy are just as valuable as the powerful and the wealthy and the famous. 
I mean, after all, why do I spend my whole life trying to become wealthy and powerful and famous if it doesn't get me anything? If I don't get to treat people the way I want to, what's the point of doing it? They know exactly the kind of kingdom that this man is going to set up and they don't want it. And so they appeal to the higher authority to say, don't let this guy become king. But they fail. He's appointed king anyway. And he comes back. And when he comes back, he calls his servants together and he says, okay, what's happened while I've been gone? What's been going on here? And the first two servants come up and say, sir, we, we invested your money and here's what we got. We made some. And he says to them, well done, good and faithful servants. Way to go. We read this and we want to say they did a good job with their money, so they get rewarded for that. But what's interesting is that the reward they get is not more money. The reward they get is authority. The outcome of this is not, you did well with that money, so I'm going to give you more money to work with. No, the outcome is, you did well with what I gave you, I'm going to give you authority over cities. And the reason why the reward is authority and not money is because this parable is not about money. It's about loyalty to the king. This really isn't a parable about what we do with what we have necessarily, about how we use our gifts That's really more the emphasis that Matthew has. This parable is about while the king is gone and in a a situation in which a lot of the citizens are against the king, did you stand up for the king? Did you say, I'm on the king's side despite what everybody else thinks? I'm on the king's side despite the fact that there is vehement opposition to the king. Am I willing to stick out my neck? Am I willing to risk for the king? Even though I'm not sure the king, this nobleman is going to be the king. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how long he's going to be gone. I don't know what the result of his appeal is going to be. But I have enough confidence in the king. I am connected enough to the king. I want what the king wants enough that I'm willing to risk for this king. And that's the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is, are we willing to risk for the king? Even in a culture, in a world that opposes the king. Even in situations where to do that may look foolish. It may it may hurt our chances for advancement. It, it may mean that, that we lose, looks like it loses, we lose instead of winning. But we do it because we are committed to the king. And we want the kingdom that this king is, is going to establish to be exactly the kind of kingdom... That's exactly what we want. We want the kind of kingdom that this nobleman wants to bring about. Even if we fail at living up to the standards of the king, that's the kind of kingdom we want. And we're willing to stand up and say, I'm on his side. I'm for him. 
I mean, it had to be difficult for them. If these citizens are vehemently opposed enough to the king that they would send a delegation to try to prevent him become, from becoming king, you know that the pressure and the stress on these guys while they stay there trying to represent him, well, that's going to be intense. It's not going to be easy to set up businesses for the king. But they do it anyway. And because they are loyal to the king in difficult circumstances, they are given more and more responsibility and authority when the king returns and takes charge. And then you come to the third guy. The third guy is trying to figure out what he's going to do. He can't decide. He's weighing, he's weighing his options because he's thinking, all right, if I stand up for the king and he doesn't get appointed king, then I'm going to be in trouble with all the rest of the citizens. Now, if I don't stand up for the king and he is appointed king, then I'm going to be in trouble with him. So I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to play both sides against the middle. I'm going to hedge my bets. And I'm just going to go bury what I've been given in the ground. And that way, when the king comes back, I can say to him, Look, I wasn't for you, but I wasn't against you. Or if the king comes back and he's not the king, he'll say to the citizens, Hey, I wasn't on his side. And he figures that either way, he can come out looking okay. But the nobleman says, that's not how it works. In my kingdom, you're either for me or you're against me. In my kingdom, if you don't take a stand for me, then it tells me that you're really not for me. If you're not willing to risk for me, if you're not willing to acknowledge that I am your king, that you're on my side, then no matter what you say, you're not really on my side. And I worry about the fact that that describes a lot of the Western church. I mean, we've got it pretty easy. So much so that we believe we can claim to be a follower of Jesus without risking for Jesus. We believe that we can say, I'm a Christian, without really living like a Christian. We've been sold a bill of goods that says all you have to do is say a prayer and you're in. And how you live after that doesn't make any difference. But the reality is this is a kingdom for people who want the kingdom to be what God says it is. This is a kingdom for people who say, I don't just talk about following Jesus. My life exemplifies that. Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, I highly recommend it for you, is very influential in my thinking about this parable. He tells in there about doing some uh, short-term teaching for the Lutheran church in Latvia. And uh, he went to the seminary there and he, he watched and he talked with some of the leaders of the seminary as they interviewed candidates who were interested in pastoral ministry and were coming to the seminary. And he said to them, so what kinds of questions do you ask people who are interested in coming to the seminary? And they said, well, the most important question we ask is when were you baptized? And they said, well, what does the date of the baptism have to do with it? Why is that so important? And he said, it, they said, well, because of this. 
If they were baptized when we were under Soviet rule, then that baptism was a huge risk. And they risked their livelihood, their well-being, maybe even their lives to be baptized. And if they were baptized during the Soviet rule, we understand their commitment to the faith. But if they were baptized after we were free from Soviet rule, then we have a whole lot more questions to ask them about why they want to be a pastor. Because we need to confirm what's going on in their hearts. I wonder sometimes if God may allow some difficulty, some opposition to come to us just to give us the opportunity to say, I will risk for Jesus when it's difficult as well as when it's easy. Jesus says, or Luke tells us in verse 11 that sort of sets the parameters of this parable. He says the people have been listening to Jesus and now as he is nearing Jerusalem, they have a sense that the time uh, is, is coming closer to when Jesus is going to declare his kingship. And they are thinking the kingdom is going to come immediately. Now, they might have a reason to think that because right before this parable, Jesus has had his encounter with Zacchaeus. And at the end of that, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And as they listen to that, some of them are thinking, oh, it's going to happen now, today, this week. And Luke says, Jesus tells this parable so that they understand that's not the case. He tells about a nobleman who goes off for a journey and you have no idea when he's going to return. And Bailey says that the reason they are so animate about wanting the kingdom to come now and the reason Jesus wants to clarify the fact that it's not going to happen immediately for them like they think, it's because they are thinking if the kingdom happens now, then I don't have to worry about being responsible for anything that goes on in this world. If the kingdom's going to happen immediately, then I don't need to worry about speaking truth into injustice. I don't have to worry about loving my neighbor. I don't have to worry about how, how I treat God's creation. I don't have to worry about being held accountable and responsible for how I live for God and the kingdom because Jesus is coming right now, so I can just forget about all that stuff. And the point of the parable is, no. Might Jesus return any moment? Of course. And there's a certain element of living as if Jesus might come any moment. But not as an escape valve. We live knowing that Jesus could return any moment, but recognizing that he might not. And so we live engaged in this world. We live taking responsibility for discipleship and relationships And doing everything we can to be an influence for the kingdom in the world. We do everything we can to to grow our own lives with Christ. And to build our relationship with Christ. And to humble ourselves before God and others. We do everything in our power to look more and more like Jesus. And to treat people more and more like Jesus. And to care about the world more and more like Jesus. Because we just don't 
No. And instead of living thinking, boy, if Jesus would just return today, then I wouldn't have to worry about loving and forgiving and caring. We say, if Jesus doesn't return today, I get the opportunity to love and to forgive and to care and to work for change and to risk for the kingdom. what it means to be faithful. I mean, this is really about being faithful, about being loyal. It's what it comes down to. It is a commitment, not just with our mouths, but with our lives, with our actions. But all that we do, that we want to be a part of a kingdom that Jesus has designed. We're committed to that. I suspect that the most troubling part of this parable is the last verse. I thought about just stopping at verse 26 and leaving out verse 27, you know, and then we just don't have to worry about it. But somebody said to me, then people would be thinking about it even more because they're looking at the Bible and, whoa, whoa, wait, there's another verse there. It's one of those verses that I keep thinking to myself, really, did that have to be in there? Couldn't you just stop right there? It doesn't, it doesn't fit into our sensibilities, and I've got to be honest with you, I, have, I don't know that I can fully explain what Jesus is saying here, but let me just throw out a couple of things for us to think about. I think one thing we need to understand is as upset as it may be to us, as troubling as it may be to us to, to think about the master coming and saying, execute these people in front of me, is that, is that with not doing that means that they remain in the kingdom and they are a negative influence in the kingdom and they are going to lead people away from the king and they are going to disrupt what the king is trying to do and they're going to disrupt people's lives. And so it ought to bother us as much that their influence on people is going to lead those people to destruction and pain and away from God, the source of life, as it bothers us what Jesus says in the parable. But there's also something else going on here, I think. When Kenneth Bailey talks about this, he says, I think it's important to understand that in the parable, the master, the king says... This is, I want you to, to bring them here and do this, but he doesn't say that they actually do it. And there is an element of the story that reflects an element of the kingdom. That while there are consequences to our choices that lead to, to, to the consequences we deserve, in God's kingdom, what we deserve is not always what we get. In the kingdom of God, we all deserve death and punishment. And Paul writes in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are consequences to our choices. These are not people who don't know what the king is about. They are not people just off the street saying, well, we don't like this guy because 
We don't know anything about him. These are people who understand who the king is and decide we want nothing to do with them. And there are consequences to that. But the thing that Bailey points out is that in in the grace of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, there is always grace. You and I are walking, living examples of that grace. If there is no grace, none of us are going to be here. None of us. None of us. The grace of God is always at work. And it is the hope that we have in Christ that because Christ dies on the cross, we have hope. God's grace is greater than our sin. And that is the nature of the kingdom. And quite frankly, sometimes we want, we want grace for us. And sometimes we may not be quite as interested in grace for other people. But God is a God of grace. And I think this is one of the things going on in the story. I think this is what causes the... The, the citizens of the kingdom to react as they do. I think it causes the third servant to react as he does. I think it causes the, the first two servants to act as they do. Everybody responds based on their image of the king. Everybody responds based on how they view this king. And some of them have come to understand the nature of the king in such a way that they, they believe that even though living in his kingdom is difficult, it is life and joy and peace and grace. And it's the best thing in the world. And the other people can't quite see that. They haven't grasped that. They have a skewed view of the king. But everybody is living out of their image of the king. And you and I do the same thing. As A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about me is what I think about God. And I think that is at the heart of this parable. It's the heart of our lives. Why do we struggle to do what God wants us to do? Why do we struggle to risk for the kingdom? Because we have not yet truly come to see God as He is. As a God of mercy and grace and truth and compassion and love, and life. And that despite the fact that difficulties come to us in life, and despite the fact that that being a disciple is not always easy, we know that the way of Christ is the way of life. To be what we were created to be. And we see that no more clearly than at this table. At this table, we come face to face with the heart and the nature of the king and the kingdom. At this table, we encounter our God who loves us so deeply and wants relationship with us so much that he would come in his son and die for us to make us new. And to make the way of life available to us. This is the kind of king. Who calls us to worship him. And to live in his kingdom.
So this morning, let me, let me ask you again the question. Who do you want to be your king? Who do I want to be my king? And the answer to that is not just what we say with our words, but how we live our lives. Gracious Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for all the ways in which you you send your grace to us and you exhibit your grace to us and you come to us. We thank you most of all for Christ. Give us a, a new image of you, the King. That we might be even more faithful and committed to you through your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you will pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. May it be food, nourishment for our souls. May it speak deeply into our hearts of your love and grace. And may it spur us to faithfulness in you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.